Welcome everybody, Andrew Holacek here. Um, I am really delighted to be able to spend the next few minutes or hours um, with a, a dear friend, colleague of mine, uh, Dr. Jordan Qualia, who's uh, a really impressive bio and really a more impressive friend. Um, we, we've done some really cool things together on the relationship between uh, lucid dreaming and virtual reality. And so we want to talk a little bit about that study. Um, there were a number of really provocative questions that came in for Jordan that we're going to also discuss. But let me start by telling you a little bit who this remarkable individual is. So Jordan is an assistant professor at Naropa University's Contemplative Psychology Program, the director of the Cognitive and Affective Science Laboratory, and research director for the Compassion Initiative at Naropa University Center for the Advancement of Contemplative Education. Jordan has served as panelist for multiple United Nations Day of Vasak. Is that how you pronounce that, Jordan? Vesak, Vesak, yeah. Uh, yeah, Vesak yep. uh, conferences, fellow and senior investigator for Mind and Life Summer Research Institute and contemplative social justice, justice scholar for contemplative mind and society. His research, supported by funding from the Mind and Life Institute and John Templeton Foundation, has been featured in leading scientific journals and books and relies on a range of tools from neuroscientific measures to virtual reality to study topics such as mindfulness, compassion, and lucidity. And so, it, you know, Jordan was very, very gracious to invite me along to engage um, with him in a study that we did that we'll be talking about that ended up being, because of his generosity, um, my first co-authored scientific paper. So I will always be forever grateful to Jordan for helping me find my way into the beautiful, rigorous world of scientific papers. <laughs> the, the extraordinary way you have to um, structure, write, uh, create rigorous analyses and the such, I, I found it really quite enjoyable and utterly delightful. Um, so Jordan, thanks a ton, my friend, for joining us here. My pleasure, yeah, thanks for having me. And so let, let's start. Um, with maybe you telling us a little bit about, and I, I guess I should say this initially as a, not a disclaimer, but at least a qualifier, that um, as a kind of cognitive neuroscientist, you, you have a deep, deep interest in using VR to explore the nature of reality. But um, correct me if I'm wrong, you're not, um, uh, I don't know, how can we say it, uh, an expert? A um, VR researcher? Yeah, yeah. exactly. So VR is just a supplemental tool for what you do, but that's not to say you certainly don't have formidable amount of knowledge to share. So with that said, tell us a little bit about your first VR experience and, and what that was like for you. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I first tried virtual reality um, before um, there was these highly immersive headsets sort of readily available to consumers like um Later throughout the interview, we might refer to the Oculus Rift, for example, as one that anybody could buy right now if they wanted to. Um, but this was at a psychology conference before these kind of technologies hit the mainstream. And there was an opportunity to try this as um, there was a company trying to sell their own headset and software to researchers to use it in the laboratory. And so I sort of signed up and waited my turn. And... Um, it was an experience quite similar to what we've gone to now research in the sense that the VR experience involved the illusion of being up 
high above the ground. And so I think I rode an elevator or something to that effect onto the top of a building. And then they had me step to the edge of the building. And I remember that the person that was facilitating said, okay, now step off the building. And I remember that my body said no very clearly, like do not take a step forward. But um, in my mind, I played a little trick on myself in the sense that I imagined where I actually was because I couldn't see it visually. I remembered the conference room I was in and the floor in front of me, and that enabled me to actually take a step. Um, but as I plummeted toward the ground, I nonetheless felt this kind of fight-or-flight uh, experience. And in their uh, program version, everything went red when I hit the ground. Um, and then the person facilitating kind of ripped off the headset and was laughing in my face at sort of the, my ghost-white uh, appearance. <laughs> and it wasn't 10 minutes later or something like that. I had to go give a, uh, a presentation at the conference, um, oh. still sort of uh, in this fight or flight mode. So for me, it was really, um, there was uh, a very clear effect on my system of, of uh, the experience. And I knew right away that this was a tool that could be used to study lucidity because, um, because it offered this kind of controlled illusory environment. Um, and so it wasn't until years later that, you know, we actually were able to get the equipment and do the research, but I knew at that point that this had potential in that way. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, and I have to share my first experience, which was was equally, I could say, transformative. I have to tell you, I mean, um, I went to a, a VR um, setup and immersed myself, I think, for well over an hour in just a number of different programs and one somewhat similar in fact it was the one that we ended up you ended up choosing for our study which you'll talk about quite shortly and um I, the minute i put the headsets on my first response was omg this is the closest thing i have experienced in uh, waking life to a lucid dream it, it, i immediately saw the connections of cyberspace to cognitive space and how we can explore both using the medium of VR. And again, there's, there's just so much to say here, but, but perhaps the most compelling aspect of this for me, as, as remarkable as the actual immersive experience when I was doing it was, was what happened when I took the goggles off, when I took the headset off. That was almost more powerful because... I took that headset off after having it on for over an hour and I looked around me in you know the so-called real world room that I was in and my first response was like whoa this is a really cool program look how clear this one is <laughs> and it was like it was like holy moly batman like what is the fundamental difference between what I am experiencing right here right now in my so-called waking life and what I just experienced in this VR medium. And so this is what we're going to be talking about over the next hour or so, because I really want to start to ping this around. And, and I mean, we are in the same wavelength here, where both virtual reality and lucid dreaming provide remarkable opportunities to explore the nature of reality. Because if you're talking about something virtual, um, it immediately implicates something that's not. In other words, virtual is only defined by its opposite, in other words, reality. And so by uh, exploring virtual realities uh, electronically or through lucid dream states, we can most certainly gain insights 
into the fabric and the nature of reality altogether. And, and this, to me, is where um, some of the many, many potentials of lucid dream, or I should say virtual reality, arise outside of its, as we know, extraordinary entertainment um, values, you could say, how that's really where people are riffing on it. I, I'm not sure if you know, Jordan, but I'm actually consulting with a team of producers, VR producers and movie producers in L.A., who are creating a program of around VR to explore uh, the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Um, and so I'm advising around that. And, and what I do want to say before I turn this back over to you to, to describe our first story and, you know, your inspiration behind it was one of the really exciting things that Jordan and I had the opportunity to do is we were able to bring into his lab um, a host of quite remarkable people, um, Lamas, Rinpoche's, meditation masters, including Pema Chodron, Sonia Rinpoche, and others. And it was really quite something to see um, people who have worked so deeply with their own mind and awareness to experience this. And, and uh, I remember in particular, Sonia Rinpoche was really taken by the experience. And in fact, for several years afterwards, and I was somewhat at some of these events, he almost couldn't stop talking about it. He, he just kept bringing up his experience in the VR lab with us. Um, and the, mi the minute Rinpoche took his headset off, without any prompting from us, you remember he said, well, my goodness, this can totally be used for things like dream yoga, which means lucid dreaming. It can totally be used for bardo yoga. And I'll come back to that later, how you can use VR to prepare for death. So let's, let's uh, give you the airtime here. Tell us about the inspiration of the study that you invited me to join you with. And tell us a little bit about the study altogether and some of the conclusions that, that uh, we came up with. Sure thing. Yeah, um, in addition to that personal experience that I had first trying VR um, and my own lucid dream experience, the inspiration I think it's maybe most accessible um, for understanding the study is a scene from the Matrix movie, uh, first Matrix movie. And so there's a scene in there that... Um, listeners will probably remember called the jump program where Nia is tasked with jumping from one building to another. And he's first learned, uh, or he's just only recently learned that the matrix is illusory. Um, and so this is one of his first sort of tests to see whether he's the one or not. And um, Morpheus goes ahead and sort of easily leaps from one building to the next. And Neo um, is uh, still fe feeling quite a bit of, real fear that this is not so illusory. And so when he leaps off the building, he actually plummets to the ground and um, hits the ground. And then Morpheus says the famous line that your mind makes it real. Um, and so for me, the, the study that we did was a way of kind of creating a little jump program in the laboratory using VR um, in the sense that we were asking people to engage in an experience that involved the illusion of height. Um, they were seemingly 50 stories above the ground, um, walking a wooden plank um, high out over the city. And um, when they reached the end of the plank, then we added this prompt in that, you know, if they'd like to, um, it was optional, but if you'd like to, um, please go ahead and take a step off the plank at this time. And so you had this um, challenge in some ways to awareness similar to what I faced in my first experience of can you sort of see through the illusion enough um, to sort of downregulate your fear in a way similar to what Neo was tasked with and take this kind of leap of faith um, that there is a floor beneath you even though you can't see it. 
Um, and so in the study, the, the goal was to see whether there was variation in the extent to which people could see through the illusion of that experience, um, what we ended up calling virtual lucidity, um, very analogous to lucidity in a dream, um, and then whether that variation actually predicted the likelihood of stepping off, whether it predicted you know, how afraid they were during the experience. And then a really cool additional piece, um, which was part of the initial inspiration for reaching out to you was, you know, getting to go to your uh, dream yoga retreat up at Chimbala Mountain Center and really test whether um, this practice that you teach there uh, of illusory form yoga, and I'll let you explain that a little bit more, but whether people who are training in that um, would also have higher levels of virtual lucidity since they're training in uh, lucidity for, for dreams. And um, long story short, you know, the study did find that there's this variation in virtual lucidity that maps on to um, uh, how much fear people were experiencing as they were at the edge of that plank um, and how likely they were to, to take a step off. Um, and moreover, the people that had this uh, lucidity form training at your retreat had higher levels of virtual lucidity and seemed even more likely to step off the plank. So, Yeah, we had some pretty colorful... Uh characters walk the plank i mean in the video uh, that yeah. you put together um that we we showed at uh the integral conference um just for our listeners it's it's really quite dramatic so you know jordan shot the video with participants permission where people people would step out and and it, maybe you can describe a little bit jordan's describe a little bit about the the setup because what really um caused the 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 immersion in it was the fact that you had juxtaposed the virtual reality setup with the setup in the room. So tell them a little bit more about having the plank in the room. I mean, that's the thing that really kind of right. you people. Right. Yeah. So the program called Richie's Plank Experience, I'll put a little plug in for that because it's available, you know, if people want to try it, has this really cool tracking feature um, that allows you to um, sort of map the plank that you see in the virtual world onto uh, whatever distance and sort of width and so on of the plank that you have on the floor in front of you in the lab. And so we did just that, we sort of matched it up. And uh, and so then when you step out onto the plank from the elevator, you're experiencing kind of the feel of that wood beneath you and uh, the tracking of yourself all the way to the edge of the plank is a, a big reason why it feels so realistic is actually that sort of one-to-one um, -one mapping of your steps on the virtual plank matching your steps on this real plank in front of you. But, you know, of course, the big difference is that you're a couple inches off the ground in the lab on this plank versus uh, 50 stories up um, in the VR environment. Yeah, exactly. And then, and so, again, for our listeners, try to imagine, we, you know, we had people that would literally, they just couldn't walk out on the plank at all. I mean, they would just sit there and just say, no, 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 I can't do it. Or they'd go out about three or four feet and then they drop down to their knees and grip, grip the plank and their knees would be shaking or, or they, they'd walk out to the end and, and some of them would like just go out in style, right? So they'd walk out to the edge and, and just do this like, you know, glorious swan dive to infinity. Um, and so the variation was, was really quite uh, entertaining and, and sometimes even hysterical to watch. But what, you know, what's so, yeah. what I want to explore here, Jordan, with your permission is, um, this idea of presence, because to me, in so many ways, this is, it comes to the crux of the matter and how it ties in so beautifully with tenets of lucidity and non-lucidity altogether. But, but I think it's helpful for our listeners to know how presence 
um, quote unquote, is defined in the context of the uh, virtual reality and how that, of course, differs from what we know as presence in the context of contemplative training. So um, talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, so um, at least, you know, on the surface, they're really different. Um, In a virtual reality context, um, the term presence has been used as kind of a core concept um, that you can kind of think of at the experiential center of virtual reality in the sense that it's the... um, sort of main psychological goal of uh, the virtual reality technology is creating this kind of what they call an illusion of non-mediation. And really, um, put simply, what presence is about in VR is making you feel somewhere other than where you actually are. Um, So there's this goal of kind of this uh, transportation of your senses uh, to a new location. And um, so, you know, in effect, what it is, is like sort of put the, the goggles on and um, it's tricking your senses, it's tricking your especially visual and auditory senses into feeling like you're in a new environment other than where you physically are. And so the more that you can do that, the, the more, quote unquote, present you are <laughs> in virtual reality, which, um, at least on the surface, um, is antithetical to how we think about presence from a contemplative standpoint. Um, where presence means, you know, feeling uh, more aware of where you physically are, feeling more situated in your current context. Um, yeah. So really, really yeah. in that context, I mean, presence is actually absence in that context. And really, to me, and this is where, this is what I want to talk about for a second, because this to me is one of the more revelatory aspects of, of VR altogether, because it talks about truly the, the phenomenology of capture the phenomenology of non-lucidity. And and I want to spend just a few minutes on this because this has been a big one for me. And um, I like to look at this, Jordan, and I'd love to hear your comments on this. In terms of of this kind of, you know, we can explore the phenomenology of of absence or capture um, in three ways. And and one way, again, these are very, very um, easy for us to kind of connect to. One is, you know, when we go to see a really, really great movie, um, one of the things that makes a, a movie really great is, in fact, its ability for us to be captured by it. We, we surrender to it. We, uh, we fundamentally allow ourselves, you could say, to go non-lucid, to be captured by the swept up, um, you know, what some neuroscientists, I think our friend Judson Brewer talks about this, the swept up continuum. You know, we allow ourselves to get sucked in. And, and, and interestingly enough, we pay for it. You know, we actually pay for non-lucidity we love to get lost in in movies internal and external and so for me i i I find this so fascinating because what makes virtual reality more real than even movie is it's it's closer in your face you know i mean the vr setup you know when you're seeing a movie you're in the dark theater and the theater is designed to kind of suck you in but when you're in vr oh my gosh i mean the theater is the is the headset. You, everywhere you look, you're still in the theater, and so because you have less capacity to contact um, reality, personally speaking, reality, the immersive capacity is directly proportional to this level of proximity. So you know, the closer it gets into your face, the more you get sucked in. And so, to me, it gets that is such a, a fascinating insight. So the what I refer to, you know, is the third stage of this immersive trajectory, which is when um, we put the screen, so to speak, on this side of our face. And that's, of course, how we get sucked up, swept away, captured, 
um, and go non-lucid to the very contents of our minds. That, you know, now the screen is not 20 feet away. Now it's not four inches away like in a VR unit. The screen is on this side of your face. And so in my experience, when I engage in meditation, one of the things that meditation does is in fact create a sense of perspective, which, which AKA that's virtually synonymous with lucidity. You, you step back, you have a new perspective. The display is still there, but you see it with a new sense of space, with a new sense of, of distance. And, and meditation works in exactly the same way that, you know, if you have the headset on, Actually, there's three ways to do this. Let's go back to the theater, if you don't mind me riffing on this for a second. So imagine you're back in the theater, okay. and you're totally into the movie, totally sucked up, and all of a sudden, the roof gets blown off, and the walls fall away, right? And and all of a sudden, the screen is now saturated with vast open space. And so the movie that, like, gone with the wind, you know, you're, like, gone into the movie, the movie's still there, but all of a sudden, because of the infusion of space and light, you're no longer swept up in it. And so similarly with VR, you have the VR headsets three inches from your eyes. You, you pull it away six inches. You pull it away from a foot, a foot away from you. The display is still there, but it's lost its capturing power. And in exactly the same way, when you meditate, you create this kind of, not dissociation, that's the near enemy, but this differentiation from the display of one's mind and therefore that display no longer has the power that it once did and so for me that that was one of the major takeaways and still is of the spiritual as psycho-spiritual aspect of vr that it instills this type of perspective i.e lucidity and then virtual lucidity so I, i'd love to have you talk a little bit more about that very notion and how your our study together um revealed to you the 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 true benefits of developing virtual lucidity yeah yeah i think that uh like i said like on the surface it initially seems as though these constructs are juxtaposed that somehow if you um, increase lucidity you're going to decrease presence um but when you dig a little deeper there's this possibility of you know there is the one way of sort of pulling the goggles further away from your face but there's also uh, the sort of experiential version of that where you're cultivating lucidity from kind of the inside and the, the goggles are staying, staying put, so to speak. Um, and uh, in that, that way, I think that there's this opportunity for lucidity to actually heighten our engagement with the virtual experience. Um, so it's a bit paradoxical. And if you look at the literature on presence in VR, they haven't paid too much attention to this paradox, but they have noted it in a few different places that there is this kind of uh, paradox in their version of presence where people are conceptually aware that they're having an illusory experience, but they're nonetheless responding um, in their physiology and in behavior and psychologically um, as though it were a real experience. And so there's this kind of question mark about how how is it that, you know, you can be conceptually aware of this, but have this um, uh, more embodied sense that it's real. And I think in, in a lucid dream context, uh, anybody that's had a lucid dream can relate to that tension. You know, there's awareness that this is a dream and yet nonetheless you might, uh, be experiencing strong emotions in response to a dream character or, um, uh, you know, standing at the edge of a cliff or whatever it may be. And I think you write about this, um, in your book as well. So, yeah. um, so I, re- yeah, go ahead. No, 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 I, I, you're, the stage is yours. Continue. Yeah, so I think that actually, you know, as time has gone on, um, 
researching this topic, I'm now thinking of lucidity as orthogonal to uh, presence in, in the VR sense of presence. And really that lucidity challenges and has the potential to uh, inspire, I think, a richer notion of presence in virtual reality research, one that has um, this added imperative of, of actually being awake to the fact that it's an illusion as it's happening. Mm-hmm. And that somewhat paradoxically, when we do that, there there is greater opportunity to lean in and sort of delight in the display of uh, the virtual experience rather than it necessarily detracting from enjoyment. Um, and the methods, you know, are the findings um, were consistent with that in the sense that people actually enjoyed the experience more when they had higher lucidity. So. Yeah, that's really fantastic. And, and, and again, it ties into what we did, um, Jordan, when you invited me to come in and, and give this brief um, loose reform practice for our the studies, our, the participants in our study. And so for those of our listeners who may not be familiar, um, a loose reform practice is a, is a unique contribution from the world of dream yoga. You really won't find it in the classic world of lucid dreaming. And in fact, a loose reform practice is of such paramount importance in the classic meditation texts that many of them subsume a, a dream yoga and hence lucid dreaming as a subset of a loose reform. In other words, a loose reform is the main practice. And so what Jordan invited me to do with the study was give people a brief introduction to the practice of a loose reform, which, as you intimated earlier, Jordan, helps them kind of um, grease the skids for lucidity within the context of waking life. And in our night school trajectory, as you may or may not know, Jordan, is part of our nightclub um, charter so to speak we we have mm-hmm. a curriculum of six tracks and the second track um, after science and, med- and the medicine of uh, sleep is the daily practices which include things like meditation and the practice of a loose reform and so for those of us who are listening to this that are really interested in uh, maintaining sustaining lucid dreams um, both loose re- both virtual reality and a loose reform are really fantastic ways to do that. In the classic meditation text, a loose reform is one of the principal ways to prepare for lucidity in the dream state. And then also, um, Jordan, you can totally riff on this better than I can. Um, Studies have now shown, I think Jane Gockenbach and others, that um, those who engage in virtual reality are really greasing the skids for lucid dreams altogether. In other words, those who do virtual reality with some constancy have a higher likelihood of, of lucidity. Um, is that, I'm, I'm curious, is that also your personal experience? Right. I don't know that it's my personal experience because there's so many sort of other factors that have mixed in since I've started trying VR, but I definitely see the potential for that. And it's interesting to think about, you know, the two pathways sort of like how lucid dreaming and lucidity and dream yoga can inform VR. And we can talk about that maybe some more too. But also then this, this pathway that you're speaking to, which is kind of like how can VR be used as a tool potentially to facilitate and support uh, not just lucid dreaming practice, but then um, maybe also the development of things like wisdom and compassion as well. Um, and my sense is that, um, you know, There's very few other metaphors that we have that are as kind of experientially compelling um, as VR for um, lucid dream. Like you said, it was the closest thing you had experienced in waking life to a lucid dream. 
So just on that basis alone, it seems to me like it's it's really ripe for um, this kind of training and kind of development. Yeah, and, and talk to us a little bit more, Jordan. We, you know, we, we're both familiar with that quite provocative New York, yeah. um, New Yorker article that came out last year, the work of Thomas Metzinger and others. I mean, I, I found it really riveting, and I'll, I'll provide a link to our listeners to this article because in this article, and I want Jordan to speak to it a little bit, what these researchers have found was they were able um, to use VR to in, uh, really invoke states of empathy and compassion. So can you say a little bit about that? Share a little bit about um, that particular aspect of how, and I think this is no small thing, how they, my understanding, if I recollect, was they, they brought some of these headsets, really, did they, did they not to the uh, World Economic Forum in Davos, right? And they put, they put them on and allowed people to experience a refugee in Syria. So talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah. Yeah, so a nickname for virtual reality, you know, especially now these sort of more consumer versions that have been uh, becoming more mainstream is empathy machine. So the virtual reality is a profound way of sort of putting you in another person's shoes. And so, you know, like presence has to do with making you feel like you're somewhere other than where you are. Um, virtual embodiment, which is the main focus of that article, is about making you feel like you're someone other than who you are. Um, and so you can, for example, put on the body of someone, uh, from a different race or ethnicity, um, you know, you could become or inhabit someone who's a different size or shape than you, um, different gender, or, you know, who lives halfway around the world and is in a war zone or whatever it may be. Um, and there's some really compelling research, even more recent, um, than what's featured in that, uh, New Yorker article coming out about this potential of virtual reality. Um, not just to create empathy in a way that's analogous to watching a movie or reading a book or something to that effect, but that its effects go uh, above and beyond that, um, both in the intensity of the empathy and in terms of the duration, um, as well as the behavioral effects, like uh, the likelihood of donating to people affected um, uh, and featured in the, the VR experience. So uh, for me, yeah, this is one of the main contributions of VR, you know, from a contemplative practice perspective, I like to think of it more and more as not an empathy machine, but potentially, you know, with the right uh, tools and so on, becoming a compassion machine. Yes. Um, and to leverage this same kind of empathy training, but to pair it with compassion training and, um, you know, even practices like Tong Lam that involves some visualization could be sort of mirrored in the VR world. Um, for this purpose. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I don't know if I should share this with you, Jordan, but I, I had a wonderful opportunity to hang out with, you know, our mutual friend, Ken Wilber, and those yeah. of, uh, listeners who were um, part of the Integral family. One of the things I shared with Ken that really attracted his attention that's really resonant along these lines is part of Integral theory um, is really unpacking the extraordinary importance of understanding um, developmental levels of what would refer to as structures of consciousness and how they're depending on the cartography they're anywhere from five to you know a dozen different kind of developmental levels um, which is a highly intuitive kind of idea that's been backed up by quite literally hundreds of uh, primarily western researchers and so what i was sharing with ken that he really that really perked his interest was that um uh, VR programs could be created that would allow someone at, you know, let's say using Carl Beck's um, kind of color modeling, someone who's at like a, 
a green or turquoise level of development, pluralistic or integral yep. level. They could they could put on a VR headset and and see what it's like to see the world from a red or even orange or amber level, you know, like kind of um, yeah. pre code stages. And then and then conversely, you know, someone at that level could put on a headset and say, "Geez, maybe, gosh, this is this is what it's like for people who are at this developmental level to look at it." And and this is much much more than just mere entertainment because what it does, it 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 could actually diffuse things like culture wars because. Yeah, one of the reasons we're so politicians are so divisive, and there's so much uh, contentious activity taking place is people just don't have empathy. They don't understand each other. They don't see through the other person's eyes. And if even if you can simulate that through things like VR, um, that's no small thing. I mean, that's a really powerful contributor. And I think that's why, you know, allegedly when Deepak Chopra first took his VR headset off, his very first words were. This is going to change the world, um, and so it definitely has that potential. Um, and, and I want to talk. I'm going to have you talk a little bit about the other end of this, Jordan, which is not so much virtual embodiment, but as, as you know, there was a recent um, study, somewhat limited in nature, that talks about virtual disembodiments and how you can use VR, very similar to the way people like Stan Groff and others have used. Um, psychotropic agents like psilocybin and, and LSD to help people prepare for death in a very uh, kind of, I think, highly analogous way. You can use virtual disembodied VR programs to mess with, you know, the, the temporal parietal junction, which is where our sense of um, location is actually born from a neurological perspective. So talk to us a little bit about how you think VR, because what I'm trying to do here is, is create the segue for you to talk yeah. about future directions of research, how VR can be used to help us even prepare for death. Right, right. Yeah, so also mentioned in that New York article are um, some great examples of the way that virtual embodiment can be used to sort of uh, mess with, uh, for lack of a better term, our mental models of ourselves and our environments. So you know, they have things that are the virtual reality equivalent of the rubber hand illusion. Um, people aren't familiar with that really compelling illusion where you sort of convince someone that this rubber hand is their hand. And um, um, and so they're convincing someone that their body, for example, is across the room from them rather than um, you know, underneath them. And um, they do this in ways by like sort of... Uh, scratching the back of the avatar that's kind of some distance away while simultaneously scratching your back um, in, in actual life. And so eventually there's this kind of transfer of your sense of self onto this virtual body instead of um, onto your real body. And so that's just one of many, I think, examples that are provided in the article. And it speaks to this uh, potential of VR to start sort of chipping away at or even sort of really pulling the rug out from underneath um, uh, these perceptions that we take uh, for granted, I think, in daily life about who we are, um, what we are, um, what we're capable of, and so on. And so that's really speaking to VR's potential in a similar way, I think, as, as lucid dreaming to open our minds to more possibility, to uh, help us become more skeptical of certain perceptions or belief systems or biases that we have. And I like to think of this in a pretty mundane way, um, like in the context of social interaction. Um, you know, how often do we sort of project onto a social interaction partner um, a previous person that we knew, and yeah. all of a sudden we're sort of relating to them through that filter? 
And so that's a, an example where there's a kind of mental model that's up and biasing our current perception. And I think VR, through kind of messing with our sense of reality in certain ways, the positive uh, side of that is this potential um, coming out of the headset to begin questioning, oh, maybe this kind of belief that I have isn't as real as what I think. Um, and um, other sorts of biases may begin to um, uh, become more you know, present in awareness. We can become more awake to them. Um, so I think that's one big potential of this technology. And as you remember, you know, the contemplative teachers that came into the lab, uh, meditation masters, that was something that they saw right away was this potential for VR to sort of mess with our sense of reality outside of it. So, Yeah, exactly. And, and really, I, I mean, don't you think, Jordan, I mean, just to paraphrase what you're saying is that yeah. in ways things like VR could fundamentally reveal to us that we are actually living inside our mental models. I mean, that's fundamentally what we think to be so-called objective reality is far from that. It, it's a, a fundamentally a virtual reality of our kind of uh, right. co-created making. I mean, I don't think that's too much of a stretch, do you? No, I don't think so. And I, I think it's worth saying, though, that uh, like the title of the New Yorker article was something like, are we living in virtual reality already or something to that effect? And I think it's interesting to uh, draw attention to the fact that, you know, a similar sort of conflation happens um, with, you know, lucid dreaming, where you sort of say, uh, somebody will say, it, reality is a dream versus you, you like to point out that it's not that reality is a dream. It's like a dream. And so I think in a similar way, VR is providing this new metaphor um, for us to think about reality, but reality itself is also sort of beyond that concept. It's not virtual reality, of course, in the same way that wearing a headset is. Right. So um, I think there's this kind of fine line between uh, using it metaphorically and then sort of conflating the two. Um, yeah, really, really good point. And, and also, you know, we, we have to point out as well, um, while there are so many truly amazing benefits, you know, I mean, they're using you can speak to this much more articulately than me. You know, they're using VR to um, work with things like PTSD for deconditioning, um, to work with phobias. I mean, it, it just has more and more yeah. quite amazing psychological applications. But it also has a shadow side. I mean, you know, Michael Hyman, is, his book, The Metaphysics of Virtual Reality, which is what, like some, what, 30 years old or something at this point? I mean, even back then, he talks about things like alternative world syndrome. Talk to our, um, our readers, our listeners about that, because I have had, when I when I went into another um, VR thing over a year ago, the Boulder Media Labs, yeah. I was there for like over two hours, Jordan, and, and we were doing, they were introducing me to some super, super creepy VR, like horror type things, which, which yeah. were, were profound. And when I, again, when I took off this time after like two hours in that damn thing, I took off the headset and I, it took me a while to like find my way back home. I mean, literally and metaphorically, I, I felt somewhat um, out of body in that kind of pejorative sense. So talk to us a little bit about things like alternative world syndrome and the shadow yeah. side research, because there are many. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, you know, for me, one of the uh, big inspirations of this line of research is actually sort of combating or pushing against this uh, shadow side. I think lucidity, virtual lucidity, um, is a way of, you know, 
giving people, empowering people directly, um, even if companies aren't interested in it at first, um, that there is this possibility of sort of staying awake to the illusion and still participating knowingly in it and enjoying it and so on. So it's like we can have the upsides of virtual reality, but we could lessen some of these downsides, like the disorientation that you're speaking to. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's really, um, I think that a lot of people when they hear VR want to go to the negative right away and they want to go to the dangers. And, um, both you and I, I think share an interest in the positive potential of this technology. And it seems like most of our discussions, um, kind of revolve around that to a certain extent, but there is this huge, uh, sort of shadow, uh, of this technology for, um, the potential for, you know, what we might think of from a traditional standpoint as promoting a kind of nihilistic worldview uh, in a sense of like nothing matters or I can do whatever I want and there's kind of no repercussions to it because it's all illusory, that sort of mentality. Um, and so I think, um, I think that, you know, there is real potential for, for um, VR to induce trauma, um, psychological trauma. I don't think it's just you know, a ground for healing PTSD, but if used in the wrong way, you know, you can engage in experiences that result in some real negative effects downstream. And um, as I see it kind of, uh, you know, infusing this technology from the start with wisdom and with compassion, is kind of the only antidote because of how powerful the technology is and how much it's sort of squarely aimed at uh, undermining our sense of where we are. So you could say sort of undermining our mindfulness, um, as well as undermining uh, our sense of who we are, um, which, you know, even though empathy sounds like a really good thing, and it often is, um, it quickly turns into empathic distress, and we sort of become overwhelmed, and we uh, check out um, from these kind of experiences. So I think we need both wisdom and compassion to uh, be here at the kind of outset of virtual reality um, in order to steer people in, in a good direction. Um, and, you know, like you said, you have this metaphor of the stem cell, which may be worth bringing up at this point for, for listeners, exactly. because I think that's kind of where I'm going. Exactly. You're reading my mind. Yeah, the image I have is, you know, stem cells are the type of kind of primordial cell of which depending on the environment in which it is placed, the cell can basically develop morph into virtually anything. And, and so the way I see VR right now is very much like a stem cell, that if you put it in the wrong environment, um, and this is already happening, you know, it, it can turn into a tumor, which is what we're seeing in, in the pornography industry. I mean, that's where VR is really taking off. Um, but at the same time, if, if we put this in the proper environment, like you're talking about, Jordan, the environment of kindness, wisdom, and compassion, then we can take the stem cell and grow it, grow it into really healthy tissue, so to speak. And that's one reason in particular that I'm interested in contributing to whatever extent I can to this type of environment where we can cultivate this technology. Because the technology, just like any other, is fundamentally neutral. It just depends on how, how we engage in it. So let, let me ask you this, Jordan. Is it fair to say that the, and, and I've heard various kind of riffs on this, kind of strong and, and the weaker versions of this, that, that fundamentally the brain really can't tell the difference between something that's visualized, dreamt, experienced, or in this case, this instance, of course, would be something experienced in VR, 
is that your understanding of of kind of the way the brain um, mediates data either um, from the outside or from the inside of the brain really can't tell the difference between these streams of information? Right. Yeah, the way I understand that is that there's sort of different levels of our system that uh, kind of care about different kinds of um, input, you know, like the uh, presence of, of physical danger from appearing, you know, seemingly being 50 stories above the ground, for example. So there's some part of our brain that is tricked by that and um, that we are experiencing, you know, um, imagining height and we are experiencing the visualization of height. We're experiencing pictures of height and we're experiencing uh, sort of virtual reality experiences of height in analogous ways. I wouldn't go so far as to say that they're kind of perfectly redundant in how the brain's processing them. Um, but their effects could be highly similar in terms of, you know, raising our, elevating our heart rate, um, uh, inducing fight or flight and so on. So I think that, you know, how I think about it is yes, there are levels of our system that aren't awake to the fact that it's an illusory experience. Um, and so it's, uh, up to us to sort of strengthen those parts of us that are awake to that and to, uh, hold those, uh, sort of lower level parts, you could say, um, in this kind of awareness where we can, um, regulate their response to the environment, um, from a sort of wakeful place. Yeah, yeah, that's really well said. Really well said. So I, I, I want to um, switch gears just ever so slightly to um, to this question. You know, where you, you've mentioned that noticing how people might be um, dismissive of VR experiences, um, similarly yeah. to how they dismiss nightly dreams. What what do you think is going on there? Right. Yeah. So um, you know, this has been something I've been interested in since sort of first myself trying VR. It's uh, having talked to others who try VR and they sort of have a, a lukewarm response to it. Um, and I sort of asked them, well, did you try this program and that program and so on? And even if they've tried, you know, some of the uh, more kick-ass programs, there's this sense in which they're kind of just not so uh, enthusiastic. And, and so I've been thinking about this in ways that are, I think, similar to how you think about wake centricity um, in your work on dream yoga and lucid dreaming. In the sense that people come sort of take the headset off and even though they were overwhelmed by the reality of the experience while they were in it, they sort of um, take the headset off and go, ah, it was just a dream. Uh, like there's a sort of analogous thing happening for them where it's like, ah, it was just virtual reality. And so this, I think, is a, is a barrier for VR adoption, actually. And one of the reasons this technology is maybe not taking off as fast as was projected in terms of people buying the headsets and so on is because of this kind of still, this wake centricity bias, where we're going to prioritize experience that uh, is seemingly more permanent um, than the kind of more illusory experience of the, the VR environment. And yeah, you know, of course there are um, uh, limitations to VR in the sense that, that, you know, we can't touch things, we can't smell things, taste things, and so on. Um, but as I see it, those are kind of technological barriers that will be overcome, you know, in years to come. So um, I think that this dismissive quality is um, something that um, uh, is affecting VR adoption. And it's really a matter of just exposure. If we get kind of people to have uh, reliably experienced, powerful experiences in VR over and over again, 
um, that could sort of nudge them in the direction of prioritizing this a little bit more. Yeah, exactly right. And, and you know, one of the things that I argue, Jordan, is um, that deep meditation, um, the nocturnal practices in particular, um, lucid sleep more than lucid dreaming, and then also um, in Bardo Yoga, the experience of death is that what happens in, in those three instances is, in fact, a deeper um, kind of uh, iteration of this taking the headset off. Because in the deepest level, when we die, we're going to take the headset off that, that, that imputes, projects, colors, this reality that fundamentally is not terribly dissimilar to the constructs of so-called virtual reality. And I think meditation has that same capacity, that, that when we engage in really, really deep formless meditation practices where we um, are able to gain this type of perspective from which we can see everything as uh, illusory, that that in itself is, is also analogous to taking the headset off. And, and that's why, when again, once again, this is what I was uh, intimating earlier, that the using virtual reality just like we, we use lucid dreams as a kind of uh, double delusion you know, a way to, to study the mechanics and the phenomenology of lucidity and non-lucidity altogether, we can get a, a, gain a glimpse of what it might be like when when the, the ultimate headset is finally taken off at the moment of death or um, in the pro, uh, deep meditations that actually prepare us for death. I, I'm curious, has this been your experience as a meditator and a practitioner? Have you had glimpses of this type of um, experience? Yeah, I think so. Um, and I, I love that, you know, the idea of the double delusion because, um, you know, as I understand it, the Buddha was uh, talking about the dream as one, one of many different metaphors he was using, like a, a rainbow, for example, for talking about illusory experience and the sort of transience of experience uh, to point out, um, you know, something similar about kind of this reality that we reify, um, the kind of wake centricity. And, um, and so I think VR really powerfully offers kind of this third delusion, right? Um, that's maybe equally or almost as powerful as having, uh, nightly dreams, uh, as these kind of simulations. Um, and so once we begin to, uh, see through that illusion, which doesn't take, you know, years of meditation experience, um, it just takes maybe trying VR one time. Um, it's a really sort of, um, small step to begin questioning uh, this reality. Exactly. And so, um, yeah. Yeah, that, and, and, I mean, again, very prescient because this is, this is the question. You so, like how, in a deep way, and this is the way I explore it in the same way I explore um, lucid dreaming is, you know, just exactly what you said, how VR can be used to help teach people about the nature of reality altogether. I mean, I think that's the kind of what I sometimes refer to as the stealth help component that there's actually more going on that can meet the outbound eye, the eye that's basically just interested in super samsara, the double delusion or the extreme immersion and indulgence of virtual reality in this negative sense that really it's, it's almost like it's a classic kind of Taoist and even um, alchemical kind of perspective is that, the, you know, the darker the, the, the poison, so to speak, the more um, proportional is also the medicine. And so I see it as, as both. And yeah, so coming back to that stem cell idea, we, we've got some like thermonuclear weapon for either deep, deep um, ultra distraction, or if used properly, is, is ways to really harness the processes of awakening and lucidity. So 
Yeah. Um, yeah. I like your, I like your weapons of mass distraction, um, term. And I think that's true. And I think that, uh, sort of what our study, our initial study demonstrates is that there's an imperative. There's really an urgency to developing practices that can get people to lucidity more directly, um, with this technology. I think that, you know, in, in this initial study, mindfulness, for example, the same amount of time of mindfulness meditation as illusory form yoga was not effective in inducing lucidity. So I think that this technology is also going to challenge us um, to um, think, you know, how is it that we can sort of get these, what we typically think of as more advanced practices like illusory form yoga um, into more hands and, and sort of equip people psychologically for the power of this experience. And I think that's, you know, um, your, you know, your work on sort of teaching illusory form yoga, even in your initial book, um, maybe goes a long way toward that. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't agree more. And you said, I have to, I, we have to get to, to this question, Jordan, and give you credit yep. for sending this one. I thought this was really fantastic. And, and so I'm just going to read it. Um, in his book, Experience on Demand, VR expert Jeremy, how do you pronounce his last name? Balenson? I think it's Balenson, yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Jeremy Balenson asks about VR, um, quote, what, when given a limitless choice, do we actually want to experience, end quote? Um, and then so therefore, how might uh, the experience of VR, how might ex- experience in VR compared to the journey of what lucid dreamers choose to do during lucid dreaming? So that's kind of a follow up to this really remarkable question. Given a limitless choice, what do we actually want to experience? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, um, we both experienced, um, I know from, you know, talking to you that, um, in initial stages of lucid dreaming, there's this kind of excitement for a lot of people. And I, I myself lived through that. I've kind of, I can do anything. Uh, I can be anyone. Um, and there's this sort of almost, we might say, samsaric drive or uh, this sort of baser level uh, desires that want to get played out. Um, and uh, eventually we sort of, okay, I'm, I got a little bored with that. And now what? Um, how do I use this, in, uh, this lucidity experience um, in a way that sort of promotes my goals more broadly? And then, you know, eventually, how can I use this? you know, to achieve kind of the ultimate goals of kind of waking up and uh, extinguishing suffering and so on. Um, So I think that it's really uh, an interesting question because the mind initially goes in ways similar to if you ask people who haven't had a lucid dream what they'd want to do, and they come up with maybe sort of all sorts of uh, of things, <laughs> entertainment sort of value things. And, um, and then, you know, someone that's had a little bit more experience starts to dig deeper and ask themselves, okay, what, what, how can I leverage this opportunity to kind of train my mind or have experience that I couldn't ordinarily have, um, in ways that are consistent with my values more broadly? Um, but I've, I've had fun with this question, kind of asking it, uh, to friends kind of at random, like over beers or something. And it's an amazing question to just stop people's mind. Um, and I've even witnessed that people get a little afraid um, to think in that direction. So yeah. I wonder whether this isn't also a barrier to VR adoption. Yeah, I mean, it's, re- it's really revelatory, isn't it? Just, in fact, very much like dreams are revelatory, that, um, you know, they get to the heart of, uh, the human uh, agenda, which is like uh, fundamentally, what is it that we really want? It, 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 
just like with a lucid dream. I mean, you have the opportunity, like um, even more so than in a virtual reality setup, because this is in a lucid dream, you can experience what some people talk about as virtual solipsism, right? Where where you you are the god of the of the mindscape that you create in the dream, and so with that type of ultimate power. And this, of course, is why, as you know, Carl Jung, who had a very, very sensitive relationship to dreams and, and surely knew all about lucid dreaming, was very hesitant to endorse it because he saw the potential shadow elements of things like egoic self-aggrandizement, where you can go in there and just, you know, kind of go ballistic within the arena of the dreaming mind. And I have to interject this very briefly for our listeners that this is one of the major selling points for things like lucid dreaming. It's just so it's so sexy, you know, feel, fulfill your wildest fantasies within the context of your own mind. But what is very little um, advertised in the small print, and this is a dream yoga contribution, is that wherever intention is created, um, even at the level of a dream, habit or karma is created. And so lucid dreams are not karmically tax-free. Um, and so I, I find questions like this one to be really um, revelatory in terms of like again what 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 is it that we're really after um and so yeah any, any more to say about that because that's a good one well i think you see it playing out in in ways that you already spoke to like the vr porn industry being so big or the horror genre you know i think people do similar things when they're first learning lucid dreaming um, um so I, I just think that this is kind of playing out at, an, uh, at the scale of a whole industry. Um, and it will be interesting to see how, um, you know, contemplative practitioners, um, you know, people doing research on lucidity and so on, may be able to shift the conversation a little bit more and uh, focus on, you know, positive applications of this in ways that um, actually sort of recognize um, this bigger potential of the technology beyond kind of its enter entertainment value. And I guess I like what you say in terms of, you know, the West has been good at sort of promoting lucid dreaming as this kind of fulfill your wild fantasies, whereas the East, the dream yoga teachings seem to focus on, you know, how can we use this lucidity um, for a bigger purpose? And so I do think like there's an analogy here too, in terms of what, how can dream yoga help us think about uh, virtual reality? Yeah, yeah. And so where, Jordan, uh, um, just kind of parenthetically for a second. So where, where does yeah. um, dreaming um, fit into your life at this point? I, I, and I have to say one thing here that um, you shared with me that I think is also helpful for our listeners to understand. And then I want to hear a little bit more about your personal journey with uh, lucidity. And that is that um, I remember talking to you a couple of years ago, and I, I mentioned something, and I think it might have been a lecture, and then you, you contributed that what I was saying that is it's sometimes possible indeed to have lucid dreams and, and actually not remember them. Um, and then you yeah. so generously said, yeah, you know, I, I, I remember three days after the fact, something just popped into my mind that said, oh, you know, OMG, I had this lucid dream, you know, several days ago. And, and so that's a little bit of a sidebar to the invitation for you to talk a little bit more about your personal experience with lucidity, lucidity and where it fits. Yeah. Um, this idea that we can actually have these, um, special dreams and not remember them, I, I think is really quite compelling. Um, so, yeah. So tell us a little bit about yeah, where, true. Yeah. yeah, where, where does lucid dreaming fit into your, your path and practice? I mean, where, sure. where is it in your agenda these days? 
Yeah. Um, yeah, so lucid dreaming has long been of interest to me. I first heard about it um, in high school. Um, in, I had a psychology class, interestingly enough, uh, in my senior year of high school. I don't think that's so commonplace, actually. Um, and in a textbook, there was this little sidebar um, in the chapter on dreaming um, that mentioned what a lucid dream was. And I remember asking the teacher about it, and he said, oh, yeah, I tried that and um, sort of succeeded, you know, but I wasn't able to fly, so I gave up after after one go at it. And I remember sitting there being like, how could you give up <laughs> at uh, the experience of flight after just one try? Um, so it was right after that that I really started in on uh, now as much as I could and, and practicing um, more Western dream practices. And that gave way, you know, longer term to my interest in, in Buddhism and Buddhism um, and contemplative traditions more broadly. Um, so, so over the years in my own personal practice, kind of um, discovering um, and coming up against often sort of uh, learning lessons the hard way <laughs> that, um, that the lucid dream offered a much bigger opportunity than maybe what I was using it for um, initially. And, um, Today, now, um, you know, I'm still interested in lucid dreams. Uh, I still feel like I have a commitment to that as a practice. But I'm also interested in sort of the translation of this understanding of lucidity um, outside a dream context. And so, hence, you know, studying it in virtual reality. But um, for me, virtual reality is just a tool, uh, really, and you mentioned this at the outset of the conversation, it's a tool for me as a researcher to study lucidity. Um, and so there hasn't really been a technology this powerful around that would allow me to get at things um, like lucidity and by extension, um, maybe even awakening um, until now. And so for me, I'm excited about the potential of VR, not because of virtual lucidity per se, but ability to study lucidity um, as it applies to dreams, as well as as, as it applies to other sorts of uh, illusory experiences that might be operating in, in waking life. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with you. I mean, that's 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 what I see it as is just another really wonderful tool for branching out um, in our exploration of lucidity. Because as I often say, uh, lucidity is just a code word for awareness, and um, you know, a lucid dream is an aware dream. And and for me, exploring. The lucid dreaming state, as as I suggested earlier, as, as a so-called example dream or double delusion, by waking up to that dream, I find myself waking up more to the so-called primary dream. And, and to me, experientially, how that's translated is um, seeing this waking reality as more and more illusory or dreamlike. And, and so that's been a, a remarkable and somewhat surprising, uh, you know, paradoxical kind of benefit of this is that as I yeah. explore the nighttime mind, the states of lucidity, and as I work with things like uh, virtual reality, it helps me wake up to the illusory nature of this world. And, and of course, here, there's so much to talk about. In fact, it's the, it's the basis of my entire second book, in my dream trilogy. What does it really mean to say that this world is illusory? It, it doesn't mean it doesn't exist, as you were talking about, the kind of nihilistic near enemy, the danger of... of um, misappropriating these insights. It basically means that um, appearance is not in harmony with reality, that, that things appear 
in a way that are not in resonance with the way they really are. And, and this is where VR has really brought in insights for me as well as lucid dreaming. And so, so along these more personal lines, I'm always very interested with, with researchers, scientists, scholars, and the like, um, how yeah. their research has affected them and changed them. And so how are you a, a different and even better person because of, of your own work? <laughs> yeah, I would like to think that's true. Um, yeah, we have the saying, uh, you know, um, of are you doing research or are you doing me search? Um, and I feel like to some extent it's kind of me search, but um, uh, because I'm interested in lucid dreams, I'm interested in lucidity, I'm interested in waking up and so on. But uh, the challenge as a researcher, I think, is to uh, raise questions that, you know, generalize beyond, you know, benefits to oneself. Um, and um, so I guess, I guess for me, it's, sharpen sort of conceptual precision um, around things like, um, you know, what distinguishes um, a sort of uh, mildly lucid dream experience from, you know, a full-blown lucid dream experience, and how might that be as a sort of similar continuum be operating in my daily life as well, and how can I kind of, um, you know, with that conceptual precision, kind of leverage that understanding to move myself up that continuum in various ways. Um, I don't know, um, I'm trying to think of sort of a concrete example, um, and, uh, I'm, I'm coming up short, um, I think for me it's really more this kind of general, uh, understanding, oh, I can think of a concrete example, um, you know, public speaking for me is one where, um, I tend to have, um, kind of illusory, we could call them illusory thoughts, um, come into my mind about how, uh, a talk will go, you know, and I can even see sort of mental simulations being played out um, where I do poorly on the talk or, you know, even worse, I get laughed at or tomatoes thrown at me or these kind of various things. And I think that actually studying lucidity and lucid dreams has helped me to uh, wear, wake to uh, that kind of illusory play of my mind. And uh, even though it's really compellingly real to my mind in the moment, I still have this sort of um, distance from it in, in a way that I didn't have um, from seeing this stuff before. Yeah, yeah, that's really great. And so, so where where do you see your your research taking you? I mean, you, you suggested very briefly some possible directions for both uh, near and long term studies yeah um, what are your what are your aspirations not just with vr but with using um perhaps lucid dreaming or even just general principles in in your own um scientific study what what are your aspirations and what are some of the developing projects okay. yeah so i think along this front um to speak to that first uh, in the short term, the goal would be to, as you know, because we're working on this together, to replicate the initial study and demonstrate again that virtual lucidity um, exists and that uh, this is meaningful variation um, that kind of maps on to people's fear level in response to the situation and so on. Um, but really, that's kind of a stepping stone to uh, validating or adding more of an evidence base to this virtual lucidity scale that we used in the initial study. Um, and, uh, you know, with a stronger evidence base for it, the hope is that more researchers will kind of take it seriously and it's a six item scale. So it's pretty easy to include, uh, in other people's research. 
And so my hope is uh, initially aiming kind of for breadth of this construct um, and to get this kind of idea into other people's hands and promote it at conferences. And, you know, um, it seems to go over well, even among VR researchers that kind of um, understand there's a little bit of a poverty of uh, understanding the mind and the experiential side of VR. They just have kind of this one construct present. And many of them have, I was surprised how many of the VR researchers at this conference I went to um, last year had had lucid dreams and that that was one of the main reasons that they became VR researchers <laughs> in the mm-hmm. first place. Um, what's that? No, I said, I, I, you didn't share that with me. That That's pretty awesome. Oh, wow. yeah. Yeah. So I think it's up for them. Um, and so that's the initial goal. And then in terms of depth longer term, you know, Really, I would like to let this um, construct or um, help this construct inform VR development, um, like the design of it and its trajectory in, in ways we've talked about. Um, and uh, I, one way that this is possible is uh, something I'm really excited about, and it's kind of a, the moonshot project of this line of research, but it, it may not be as far off as I think, is a kind of... Uh, way of having a brain-computer interface uh, and a kind of neurofeedback uh, through virtual reality where um, as one becomes more lucid in the virtual environment, more awake to its illusory nature or its virtual nature, then the um, experience itself changes in various ways that are analogous to what we might experience in a lucid dream, um, such as becoming more realistic, so the resolution increases in ways that are similar to you know, when you become more lucid in a lucid dream, it often becomes hyper-real. Um, and then also um, that as you become more lucid, it affords greater degrees of control over the dream or the, over the virtual experience, um, again, analogous to lucid dreaming. So for me, that's kind of um, the extension of this work is to really build a simulation of what a lucid dream is like. Um, and I think that that... Um, have a lot of potential, you know, in ways similar to what we've talked about as how could VR be used to train people for lucid dreaming, um, but also to teach them about their mind. So this kind of, I think, VR-mediated neurofeedback could really help people train their consciousness and their wakefulness. Yeah, that's 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 fantastic. I mean, when I think about the the future of VR and I get excited, that's certainly what comes front and center to me. And And, and maybe you can say even more about this because I know there are others um, who are doing work with, uh, you know, haptic systems where, or, or you know, cyber, otherwise cybernetic systems where, where what, like just exactly what you were saying, that, that make them even more real, more immersive, that and more participatory, that, that what you actually do is fed into the, the actual program that you're in, involved in. And so your, your level of, kind of co-enactment um, or co-creation of your experience becomes increasingly heightened and therefore even more captivating. Um, so can you say a little bit more along those lines and how, because uh, usually when we think of VR, we usually think primarily of, of visual um, experience, which again right. is highly resonant with the lucid dreaming experience because uh, unless we go after it, most of our lucid dreams are dominated by vision, which is, as I'm going to be talking about in the future, is a subset of wake centricity, which is this kind of emphasis on sight centricity. But really the most yeah. foundational sense for 
creating a sense of I-ness is in fact um, a touch, soma. And, and, uh, and, and so these, talk to us a little bit, a bit about the, the kind of what they refer to as haptic processes that are developing in VR. Yeah, uh, and as a starting point, I'll say that yeah, there's some research that suggests that you know even the auditory sense when you remove that from the VR experience, that accounts for something like 30% of the variation and immersion. So even just having headphones on is adding a whole lot to the picture. And there's people working hard, I think, on I met some of them at this conference on how to make the audit, uh, auditory experience more immersive, um, and in ways that are sort of modeling the three-dimensionality of the world better. Um, but then you have also people working really hard on the haptic side of things. And that's... Some of this... But I've seen demonstrations of kind of higher-end versions of this uh, online. And... Um, it seems like there is a way that they, they're able to create kind of um, the illusion of touching something and even uh, in some cases text some texture. Um, and so I think it's a matter of time and a lot of hard uh, effort and intelligence going into this, these kinds of problems, which they're this And then... Like you're saying, you know, you're ramping up the immersion even more. You're ramping up the VR uh, version of presence, and you're further undermining um, this sense of uh, where you actually are uh, in place of some kind of virtual environment. And so, I think as these additional senses get get replaced, uh, you can think of it as each sense getting replaced by the virtual sense. Um, you're just going to see more and more of people kind of going non-lucid, uh, them spending more and more time in virtual reality, potentially. And uh, there creates even more of a sense of urgency for us um, to to get people to be awake uh, as they're engaging in this and not just sort of sucked into this, what you call super samsara. Yeah, yeah. I mean, do you, do you think, in fact, I, I mean, I know I do, that taken to its extreme, this... This immersion, I mean, it, really on one level, somewhat perhaps facile level, um, that's one way to talk about psychosis is, is where one takes the contents of mind to be ultimately real, you know, hearing voices and acting upon them, that sort of thing. So I, I think, of, you know, this is a kind of a, a fascinating corollary that the benefits are, are really exciting, but the concerns are also proportionally disconcerting. And so... Um, I mean, I know in Korea, I was just recently in Korea, they're uh, kind of the addiction to video games is such that, that they literally have video game detox centers for kids. Um, I'm curious if you foresee that same type of problematic developing with things like VR. I mean, on one level, it's still relatively exclusive club, mostly because of the it's prohibitive. These devices are not um, affordable. At least the high immersion quality, quality systems are not affordable. Yeah. Now, on one level, I, I'm seeing that as a bit of a blessing because if this thing did become immediately available at a mass scale, um, we we could discover some really potentially um, deep dark sides to this. So, do you do you are you equally concerned yeah. with this sort of thing? Oh yeah, sure. Yeah, I think that you know. Um 
it'll be uh, interesting. I'll use the sort of neutral term to see how uh, this technology develops and its adoption over the next 10 years or so. I think it's lagging behind what people expected, and you're seeing it adopted in a, a sort of more interesting um, more and more VR arcades where people can go and kind of have this experience almost like an amusement park or an arcade versus kind of in your home. Um, let me put this on and, and wear it kind of as much as I might watch the television kind of thing. Yeah. And I think that part of the reason for that is because it's so powerful. Um, I think that people don't necessarily want to uh, be immersed in uh, kind of non-mediated uh, experience um, for extended lengths of time because it is disorienting. Um, that said, I think I've seen, you know, younger um, kids at these VR arcades already really into this stuff in ways that they can sort of seamless between the virtual world and the real world. They kind of lift their goggles when you walk in the room and say hello and then put them back on and keep doing their business. Um, so I think also these, you know, younger generations, uh, the adoption, there's going to be less friction there. Yeah. And um, it really challenges, there's a kind of existential question, you know, to what extent are we going to prioritize, uh, you know, reality with a big R over virtual reality. And um, I think video games, you're seeing something analogous happening in the sense that their whole goods and uh in these virtual worlds and that people are spending real money in them and that they're spending most of their time in them and so they're prioritizing a, a world that has um you know more limitations you could say is not as connected or interdependent with the rest of the world um and so i think it's going to be kind of an existential question for uh us as a society how much do we want to um prioritize these kind of virtual worlds and can we build them in ways that um, they're not so fragmented from, you know, this reality. Um, and I think that one way that you're going to see that happening is through not virtual reality, but through augmented reality, which uh, is where you're sort of mixing digital objects with the real world. Exactly. And by many um, smart people's projections, that's going to be a bigger business than virtual reality. Yeah. Um, but, but for me, Really long term, virtual reality might be just as big in the sense that, you know, when we ramp up the immersion to the point that you can really have some really wild and fantastic experiences that are photorealistic and um, social and so on, then, um, you know, I see people spending yeah, more and more time in these spaces. Yeah, no kidding. So say, say a little bit more. Um, some of our listeners may not be at all familiar with augmented reality. You, you just peppered a few comments. T tell our listeners a little bit more about that, because that's also when I first tried it, a really kind of compelling, to say, a mildly experience. Yeah. Yeah, so augmented reality um, is uh, when you, it's sometimes called mixed reality, although there's some confusion and uh, different terms that are getting thrown around. So I'll just mention that in case people are reading about it. Um, but basically you have um, a site, you have vision uh, maintained and auditory uh, input maintained from the real world versus VR, you're sort of enclosing um, and your entire um, vision is captured by the virtual content. In this case, you're still able to see natural light, you're still able to see the world around you. But embedded in that world uh, in various places are digital objects. And so the most mainstream version to date of 
mixed reality is a po- this, this game Pokemon Go. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you've probably heard of that where uh, people go around sort of uh, trying to catch these little uh, creatures that are um, embedded uh, in sort of geotagged locations around one city or around the country. And um, you can, you don't wear goggles in this case to see the Pokemon, but you sort of hold your phone up and your phone's camera um, reveals the Pokemon that's there. And then you can kind of throw up a, a little thing at it and capture this little creature. And that's part of the game. And this was hugely successful. I mean, it's a massive success. Um, and from um, blogs and su- such that I read, I know that there's this, a uh, new augmented reality game coming out, uh, Harry Potter, basically Harry Potter Go. And that's probably going to be even a bigger success and make augmented reality even more a, a part of our daily life. And then sort of the next step for the augmented reality technology, some people believe, is that Apple may be unveiling, uh, some people think in the year 2020 for the pun, uh, maybe uh, unveiling uh, augmented reality glasses that uh, allow us to sort of go through our daily life almost as though we had our smartphone on our face Mm -hmm. um, and kind of see these Pokemon or the Harry Potter stuff or advertisements for that matter uh, kind of over. Yeah. What a scary thought that is. I mean, right now, you know, we've got Uh this arm's length in our, in our palms, but um, you know, you slap those puppies like it's a little bit like what I was talking about earlier. Uh, you slap those things like directly in front of your face with a pair of glasses, and it's like, whoa, you know, like yeah. it, it really would be extraordinary both the light and the shadow of where this is going to be taking us over the next hundred years if, if, if we even survive the next hundred years. Um, so I yeah. find it really, really quite compelling. And so I, I do want to pass one question to you that came from one of our most active members, Arthur. In, in fact, Arthur. When you listen to this, many of your really great questions I've, I've kind of dovetailed and incorporated into the questions I've asked Jordan so far. But there's one here that that I didn't address that I want to pass along to Jordan. It's a little bit strong version. And this is what um, Arthur is asking of, of us here, um, Jordan, when, where he asks, in the Tricycle article, quote, is virtual reality getting too real, which is a piece I submitted to Tricycle a couple of years ago. Um, Andrew Holacek says, quote, I wish VR wasn't here, but it is, end quote. Um, do you agree with that? And and so, again, I think this is just another um, way to talk about some of the blessings and curses of this technology. But um, just to respond to Arthur's um, impassioned set yeah. of questions. Do you agree with me when I say I wish virtual reality wasn't here? <laughs> right. Yeah, I'm going to... Um Say so first of all, I don't know. You know, I think that uh, we sort of have to see how history plays out with this, and kind of like your metaphor of the stem cells. So I don't, I don't really know uh, my opinion on that firmly. It's kind of trying to guess at kind of the the moral compass of this technology or the moral direction of it longer term. Um, but you know, for the sake of, of inspiring kind of difference uh, of thought here, I'll say that I'm I I'm glad it's here. Um, you know, I think that. Um, some of the potentials I see of this technology longer term are really cool and um, not just cool in an entertainment value kind of way, but cool in a meaningful way, um, such as, you know, thinking about it as a compassion machine, for example, or about it as a way of training for lucid dreaming or uh, wakeful uh, engagement with life. So 
for me, I'm, I'm, I'm going to just say that, but also, you know, preface again, that I don't really know um, how I feel about the technology and I'm kind of sort of waiting on the sidelines to see. Yeah. Yeah. And, and very briefly along these lines, and I, and I think you read that, at least the abstract of that article, or I should say study. And I just want to circle back onto this very briefly because we, we, we touched on it, but we didn't really unpack it. Um, how virtual disembodiment um, can be used to um, help people prepare for death. And, 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 you know, there was that one recent article, I think right. they had, did what was it, 19 females or something like that. I, I'm curious yeah. what your riff on, on that is. Where do you think that might um, go? Because um, I personally, as a student of Bardo Yoga, um, find that, that that is one of the really exciting aspects of this. But I, I can't speak with as much authority as you can, both about that study and also where you think this might be taking us. Yeah. Yeah, I remember you sent me that study. I, I feel like it's, um, it's an interesting direction for future research. And I think on my remark was something about the low sample size and sort of methods kind of level of it. But, you know, from a big picture standpoint, um, I think that this is, this is big. I think that, um, you know, the potential of VR to be used, um, in various ways to induce experiences in a more controlled fashion than what people might, you know, traditionally or not traditionally, but people might turn to drugs and, uh, sort of shamanic practices and things that are sort of less reliably evoking, um, a certain experience that they want to have, like encountering death and seeing what that might be like. I think that VR is offering maybe a safer way of engaging with these kinds of questions, these kinds of experiences. Um, and um, moreover, because you can uh, tailor it and tweak them, there's this potential of, you know, in the future, at least when VR development becomes uh, a little bit more efficient, of creating tailored versions of these kinds of experiences where someone could have a new experience using cultural sense and so on that's consistent with their belief system. And I know that that's probably consistent with what you're working on um, with this part of project. So yeah. uh, for me, I totally, I totally think that that's um, an exciting direction for this technology to go in. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, so as we start to close this thing down, Jordan, um, how can people learn more about you? Um, what are what are some ways people can stay informed? Because a, a large part of what we're doing with our charter is really, you know, kind of cross pollinating, putting people in contact with other people, um, and doing like I mean, you're doing some really cool things, and and I want people to know more about how they can stay in touch with you, how they might be able to support you. So uh, give us a little bit about how people can do that. Great, thanks. Yeah. So, uh, as you mentioned, you know, I'm a professor at Naropa University. So, uh, you know, you can look me up at Naropa. Um, and uh, I'm pretty sure I'm the only Jordan uh, at Naropa, if I'm not my last name. And um, then my uh, lab website is pretty simple it's CAS Laboratory. So, if people want to uh, check out some of the research that I'm doing, kind of keep up to date or in touch with me, that's probably the easiest um, way to do so. Yeah, fantastic. Because, you know, as, as we continue and our membership grows, um, we will find an increased population pool where we can draw on, on subjects either for in-person studies or um, studies, you know, versus via questionnaires and the like. And, and many people have already 
approached me as members of our club with this kind of interest that they they want to support the science end of it. They're some of our our people are pretty gifted lucid dreamers, and they they actually approached me with how can I help scientists explore these sorts of things. And this is completely in line with what we want to do: is connect people with other people, um, introduce uh, those who may not be aware of of gems like you and what you're actually contributing and so we get super jazzed about this kind of cross-pollinating um, capacity what we're trying to do here so as we start to wind this thing down my, my friend any any final words um about this romp altogether anything you want to share before we uh, close this particular project down um yeah i think i think i'll just say that you know i think uh a couple of the themes that we're talking about here really is that lucidity is a, is a protective factor against some of the downsides of VR that we've talked about, um, but that also it has the potential to preserve its upsides. So for me, I'm really um, interested in kind of um, hammering that second point in because I think people think of lucidity as something that might undermine their enjoyment of virtual reality. But for me, it's actually a way of, of getting the benefits of this technology and lessening some of the downsides. And then um, another sort of theme um, for me is just thinking about um, kind of the longer term trajectory of this stuff um, and how, um, you know, lucid dreamers, contemplative practitioners, I love that you're, you're bringing up kind of the invitation to kind of the call potentially for research participants for this kind of thing. Because I think there is real potential for uh, people like us to inform the development of this technology. And then as much as I said, I'm kind of sitting on the moral sidelines of this. Really, you know, we're not. We're trying to engage with the technology in skillful ways at its outset um, so that, you know, we can move it more and more toward positive uh, applications rather than this kind of, um, uh, you know, detrimental side. So, yeah. Yeah, really well said, really well said. And so, Jordan, really, thank you so much um, for doing the work that you do, for spending this last hour and a half with us. Um, it, I mean, I always learn so much from you. You know, you're, what you're doing is, is just um, uh, really compelling, provocative stuff. And to whatever extent um, I or my community, this developing community can support you, we really want to do it because you're, you're doing some cutting edge stuff. It's really, really sweet. So thank you so much for, for joining us. Thank you so much. And yeah. uh, I'm sure we'll have an opportunity to do this again, because if we collaborate, collaborate on, on future studies, we'll have more material to riff on. And, and um, just like with lucid dreaming proper, the more you start to explore the VR um, potential, especially in conjunction with things like the nocturnal practices, more you realize, boy, there is a heap here. There's a lot to talk about. And so I think with this time, we introduced uh, quite a number of people to some um, really interesting stuff that I hope to explore with you in the future. So thank you once again for taking so much time with us, and, and let's do it again. Sounds great. Thank you. Okay, Jordan. Bye now. <laughs>